It is interesting, isn't it, how much of the story of Christmas um, gets informed by all of the imagery of popular culture, Uh, which is why I think it is really a a wonderful topic this year for us to be looking at Christmas as the true story that it is. Uh, We came up with that particular title because within our staff we were just mindful of the extent to which a lot of false stories get attached to Christmas. And, and, and knowing the true story of Christmas itself really does help us to liberate ourselves from some of the, the myths that we can otherwise live our lives by. It's also a true story in the sense that um, it's such an amazing, awesome tale that we need reminding that this really happened. And so I want to think about that story with you afresh today and do so by taking you back to two accounts in the Advent narrative. I'm going to start with Luke chapter 2, read just the first few verses of the text, and then we'll hop over to Matthew chapter 2 and read a few verses there as well. And I want to invite you to listen then together as we hear the Word of God. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Interesting, Syria in the news even then. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him. And was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And then a little later in the story, as Matthew tells it, when the wise men had gone, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod, the king, is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it is beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And I don't know if you've noticed that in the shopping malls here at the church or in your home, but preparations are being made. I know in our house, uh, the preparations have been afoot since about 10 minutes after Thanksgiving. Our house is unusually far along in the process, thanks to the heroic efforts of my wife, Amy, mainly. We've got the tree up, we've got the lights on, the ornaments, she put a bunch of the ornaments on last night, the garland has been hung, the wreaths are out, I've got to get the Christmas lights on the outside trees shortly. 
Our kids will be coming home from college soon. We've got an out-of-town guest coming. We've got the front room being painted to get ready for them. There's a Christmas puzzle on the puzzle table. And I am more excited than ever to have Christmas coming. There's just nothing like being home for the holidays. I think back to my first experience, having left home, gone off to college, returning at Christmas vacation, and what that felt like. I remember taking the exams, the last of my exams, climbing into my sporty Chevrolet Chevette, (laughs) motoring down the road in a snowstorm, pulling into the driveway and seeing the driveway packed with cars. There was a party going on at my house. And I walked so dog-tired through that doorway, I smelled all of the wonderful aroma of what was cooking inside. I heard the laughter of the crowd, the clink of glasses, the sparkle of the fire was there. And I thought to myself, there's nothing like being home for the holiday. I think that for me, One of the reasons why I love Christmas is because of the experience of home that I associate with it. Uh, For me, so much of my sense of home is described in the words certainty, stability, and security. I feel a lot of those kinds of things when I'm home. I don't want to suggest to you that my home lacks the kind of chaos that Your home probably has. Most homes do have a certain amount of it. But really, by contrast with all that's going on in the world outside these days, all the stuff that floods across our news channels, all of the the tumult that goes on even in the shopping malls at this time of year, life in my home feels pretty stable in contrast. At least for a moment, I can lock the door I can retreat inside, I can find my way to a comfy seat on the couch, I can pull up a blanket, I can turn on the TV, I can watch an old movie, I can get the fire going, I can just shut out the world that's spinning outside and feel secure and safe and certain about things. Few things, I think, are more sweet to me than being at home on a snowy day here in Chicago. Sociologists are are saying that this kind of cocooning in a home is becoming sort of a national pastime. Uh, Increasingly in America today, we're investing in our homes. We're upgrading our TVs. We're improving all of our control systems. we're, We're just making our homes as comfortable as they possibly can be and going out, frankly, into this wild world less frequently than ever before. I understand why that is. You live in a world that's got a lot of injustice, a whole lot of violence, all kinds of economic and climate changes, mass migrations, social upheavals. People increasingly see home as like the one place you can go where you can find refuge of a certain kind. How many of you feel that way? Your home is your sanctuary. It's that safe place in your life. Because I think at home, at least, we feel like we've got some measure of the kind of of certainty and security that comes with having control over stuff. You know, at home we at least have some control over uh, the universe. 
Uh, and the good news, I think, is that that's only getting better thanks to technology. I don't know how many of you have seen the, the new home auto, automation systems that are available out there. I saw an ad for one this morning as I was getting ready for church. It was for a, a thermostat, a computer-controlled, handheld device-controlled uh, thermostat. They can allow you to adjust the climate in your home at will, wherever you are. And that's just the beginning. And they've got handheld uh, programs, apps now that allow you to... To, to, to not only change the channel on your, on, on your TV, but change the lighting, the, the colors of the lights in your house. You can, you can uh, do all kinds of things. You can run the security system from your handout. If you've got a security system, you can, you can be downstairs in the basement now, working out or doing whatever you're doing, getting the Christmas ornaments, and somebody rings the front door, you just take out your tablet or your handheld device, and you can see a f- the face of whoever it is at the door, and you can tell them to go away. You're cocooning. You can do all of this stuff now. It's amazing. You can be sitting right here in church, e- even. And from the comfort of your telephone, you can make the doors in your garage go up and down and up and down just to baffle the neighbors and confuse the dog. It's amazing how much control is available to us these days. Most of us, I think, like control. Most of us like the kind of certainty and security that comes from having control over stuff. I think that's why we like to plan things out, many of us. We want stuff predictable. We, we prefer our media on demand. We like to have services on a dependable schedule. We, we like things to work out just as they are advertised. We value warranties and money-back guarantees and option-out clauses in case stuff change on us. Some of us, we buy insurance, insurance just to supplement our other insurance. We look at reviews and websites of restaurants and resorts and even of churches just to check out exactly what they're going to be like before we even go there because we want to have some control over the experience. That's increasingly true of us. In fact, we like the certainty, the security that comes with control in America just about more than any place else. And we've had it more in America than just any place else in history. We've had more stability and certainty and control than any other culture or civilization in human history. And it's there in that kind of place of control that we feel at home. It's there we feel at home. Maybe, not surprisingly then, we can slip into looking at religion in these terms. You ever thought about that? We can start to think of, of, of our faith, our church, our religious experience as just another strategy for getting more certainty, stability, and control in our lives. You know, we, we can go through the, the rituals, we can uh, read the Bible, we can do our prayers... And and our sense is that if we do these things, uh, God will respond in some way. He'll open up the door of opportunity or of prosperity. or He'll give us the the happiness or the peace that we would like for ourselves. Without even realizing, and I I find this in myself, I surprise myself with this sometimes. I, I bring to God my plans. I have been good at making plans all my life. I'm good at setting agendas and plans. And so often I'll develop them very very well and then I'll come to God and I'll say, bless this, please. Please bless my plan. And I'm thinking, it's a good plan, God. It's well organized. I've got things under control. I just need your blessing on the plan. 
And so I think of God as sort of like my divineamazon.com. I place my order, I expect it to be delivered and on time. And then when things turn out differently, I'm confused. I get out of sorts. I, I feel like I'm losing control. This is why, if you're anything like me, the events of Christmas, the true story of Christmas, needs to get recovered for you and for me. It is why I think it's important, one of the reasons why it's, it's going to be valuable for us to be doing what we're going to be doing as we review the story this Advent season. Because the true story of Christmas it really dispels this myth that we live by, that we can have things, certainly, and, and stably, and under control uh, on our terms. Uh, because if giving life to people on the comfy couch, uh, if, if, um, if helping people have everything they want predictably under the tree of life is really God's plan, then the stories we read about in Christmas are, are very badly timed because they tell a very different kind of tale than, than, than that one of the Santa God. I think that's the problem. I think we get God confused with Santa. He's not to be confused with Santa. I'm going to write a book about this one day. It's going to be called Santa God. I, I think we confuse God with the Santa Claus image. And what's amazing is how the people that God worked in and through in the original Christmas story uh, didn't think of God as like Santa Claus, didn't expect him uh, to be their personal delivery service. And and I want to go back to this story because we're in danger of forgetting, I think, that, that Mary and Joseph were real teenagers. You know, we see them so often in the story. They're, they're kind of now Christmas card characters to us. They're wooden figures in a, in a nativity set. But, but these were real teenagers. Um, this is a true story. Um, and these, these teenagers, Mary and Joseph, had the kind of hopes and expectations that you've had, that I've had, that young people always have along the way. They were engaged to be married, and they fully expected that that engagement uh, would lead to a happy home and to a greater measure of stability and certainty the way marriage worked in the first century, the way marriage is often thought it's supposed to work. They had expectations for the ramp up to their wedding, no doubt. They knew how that process should go, you know, what should come first, then what should come next. They, they no doubt had images of the wonderful marriage celebration, the wedding celebration, and the night of consummation. And uh, they had a picture of this. They, they, I'm sure, had some ideas about, you know, about when they would try and have their first child and what the first few years would look like as they raised that little one and then how things would flow from there. They certainly, like almost every parent, wanted to make sure that things were stable and under control in the household, that, 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 that they their child especially was protected from the amount of violence that was going on in their world. I mean, back in the first century, there was just a lot of political violence and social unrest and religious conflict going on. And Mary and Joseph would want their child, when that child eventually came along, to be protected from all of that. In short, they wanted to build for themselves 
and their family a home. They wanted to build a home. But that is not the metaphor that describes their life. That's not the metaphor they actually lived by. Instead, the life of Mary and Joseph became a road trip. Not a home so much as a road trip. Now, how many of you have ever seen a road trip movie? Have you ever seen one of those road trip movies? There is one called Road Trip. You can, you can watch that. How many of you have ever seen Thelma and Louise? Or one of the National Lampoon vacation movies with Chevy Chase? Or Sideways? Or, God forbid, Bridesmaids? Or The Hangover? Don't see those movies. You don't need to see those movies because all these road trip movies, they've got this one basic idea that undergirds all of them. And this is the idea. Life is what happens to you when you've made other plans. Okay, life is what happens to you when you've made well-laid plans. So so the story of, of, of the road trip life is, is Mary and Joseph's true story. You know, I, I, think, I think of the huge number of potholes and unexpected turns and steep hills and roadside threats that these two faced. You know, first of all, it's announced, as you know, Mary is, is suddenly pregnant, like way before schedule. She is suddenly pregnant. And, and this creates havoc and confusion of all kinds. And you can imagine the conversation, just trying to explain this and talk this through with Joseph, you know, and then then with the parents, and then with the extended family, and then with the friends. This was just not a done thing that Mary was pregnant. And, and, And trying to explain that she was pregnant by previously inconceivable, pun intended, means wasn't helping for most people. You know, it just wasn't solving the disturbing elements here. And then And then Mary, she's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and just about at full term when this law comes down from the government that everybody has to leave where they are and go back to where the the head of the household's family was originally uh, born and, and they had to pay a new tax. The government was doing more and they needed to be more taxes and so people had to go. So Mary is like way along in the pregnancy and they have to travel from Nazareth in the north of Galilee all the way down to Bethlehem in Judea. I mean, it is about a 70 or 80 mile journey. And, and no offense to the kids, but there wasn't a car. There wasn't a donkey likely. This was a poor couple. They probably walked. Walked. 70 or 80 miles. It took them a week to make the journey. And then they get there. And, and there's no place to stay. Everybody else has gotten there before them. There's not a guest room anywhere. They, ha- they have to figure out what to do because maybe because of the, of the exertion of all of that walking. Uh, Mary is now, the labor pangs have hit. And, and she's in agony. And, and Joseph's looking around, and they manage to find, you know, this, this little uh, stable behind somebody's place that, that, the, that the owner agrees to give to them. Believe me, when, when they thought of having a stable life, that wasn't the image, literally. They had in mind. 
And the Bible says that it is there. And I, and I, I think if that word is blinking in the text. I think that word is pregnant with meaning, with irony, with tragedy, with, with disruption. It's of all places, given all they were expecting, they wind up there in this dung-strewn stable It's there, miles from home, miles from Mary's mom, miles away from anybody that she would have known that could be there to help her in this time of terror. This is her first experience of this. She undergoes the most horrifying, terrifying experience a woman may ever have. And this girl of maybe 14 or 15 and this terrified teenager dad, they give birth to the firstborn child, a son, we're told. And Mary wraps him in cloths and places him in a trough from which animals eat. True story. This is the true story. Then fast forward a little while. They're back in Nazareth now. They've come home. They're trying to build a home. (laughs) And, and, and suddenly the news comes that a homicidal maniac, the king of Judea, Herod, has decided to kill children. He's decided that, that maybe the Jewish prophecy of a king of the Jews could come true. And so he decides to cut off the possibility by ordering the extinction, the systematic rooting out and slaughter of every kid, under every Jewish boy under a certain age. And suddenly it's road trip time again for Mary and Joseph and now their baby. They have to get up and they have to leave the semblance of a home and go off on the road. And there they are, refugees. They are refugees, this holy family. They're on the way, walking now much more than 70 or 80 miles south towards Egypt. They're in the company, no doubt, of all kinds of other families, similarly terrified for their children's lives. Just picture those those shots of the Syrian families, the desperation, the exhaustion in the faces. This is the true story of Christmas. This is our story. And then, a little further along, we see the theme again in the tale of the Magi who go on this wrong road trip themselves. They leave their home in Persia. They go off. They're not sure where. They're just following a star. They're risking the wrath of Herod along the way. I think there's a message in all this. I mean, I think these different road trips we get to see They're telling us something. God's begging us to see something in this story. You see, we just keep trying to achieve these lives of this Hallmark card kind of peace. You know, who could blame us, right? The world is an unpredictable place. We just want some peace. We keep trying to construct for ourselves more control, a better cocoon, more stability. I think every Christmas I'm going to get a little closer to that kind of home. I'm going to be in that place where I'm really safe with God and my loved ones. God can meet us in that kind of place. You know, 
that's not a bad place. Mary got moments like that. Joseph too. We're told in the scriptures, you know, there's this moment, there's this sweet moment when she's just holding the baby. She's heard the shepherds and the others tell the story and the angels talk about who he really is. And Mary just treasures all these things and ponders them in her heart. I hope you get a few moments like that this Christmas. I hope you have some moments where you just stop long enough to ponder the sweetness of life, the goodness of your loved ones, the preciousness of time. I hope you get these moments. But you know, the true story of Christmas is of a God who comes to us when we're not in those places. That's the even better news, I think, especially these days, given what's going on in our world. The true story of Christmas is about a God who comes to and walks with and works with people, not when they're sitting at home drinking eggnog by the fire, not when they're living a life that's completely under control, but the God who comes to us when life feels like a very wild and unpredictable and dangerous road trip. It's about a God who accomplishes his purposes in times of tremendous uncertainty. It's about a God who gets stuff done for the good in periods of apparent total instability and insecurity. It's about a God who sometimes purposely takes people on up and down journeys with unpredictable turns in the road and very steep hills and and dangerous people along the roadside because it's on that kind of a journey, which, by the way, a journey that Jesus himself walked, it's that kind of a journey that reveals what we're really in this thing with God for. It's on that kind of a journey that you discover and God sees whether you're in it for the religion or for the relationship. What's the difference? The difference is about who's in control. Religion is about me in control. It's about me going to the rituals of my choice. It's about me adhering to the rules of my choice. It's about me um, doing what I can to secure my future. It's about me in control. God calls us instead into a relationship. God calls us into a, an encounter with him that requires that we put faith in his control in his plan, in his program and agenda. I said to you earlier, life is what happens to you when you've made other plans. Let me add to that. History is made by what you do when life happens. History is about what you do when life happens. And that, I think, is what we stand to learn most from the example of Mary and Joseph, these teenagers in this, in this tale. Mary and Joseph had their version of home broken up. They had their set of experiences or expectations shattered completely. They had their private comfort violated. They had their uh, public reputation sullied. They had their personal safety threatened. But when life happened to them in all of these unbidden ways, they made the decision to put their faith in God's control. They put their trust in his presence with them. 
They put their trust in his providence at work in the circumstances. They put their trust in his promises uh, to them. They faithfully and obediently followed him step by step by step. And as a result of that, God made history through those two. He did. 2,000 years later, we're still telling their story. He made his story through them. And he caught us up in this true story of his purposes. One of my favorite books in recent years has been a book by a guy named Daniel Taylor called The Myth of Certainty. The Myth of Certainty. And in this um, particular book, uh, Taylor writes this. While certainty is often beyond our reach, let me say that again, while certainty, read stability, control, security, is often beyond our reach to compel, a meaning, which he says is something far more valuable, is not beyond our reach. Meaning derives from a right relationship with God based on risk and commitment. Meaning derives from a right relationship with God based on risk and commitment. We often say to God, I know I do, God, give me some better reasons to trust you and then I'll risk and commit. And God smiles and he says, Dan, you risk and commit some more and I'll give you more reasons to be glad you did. It's called faith. It's called a faith walk. The question I want to ask each of us to ask ourselves in closing is, where do we need more faith? Where do we need to exercise more willingness to risk commitment to the way of God? Is there a dark or disrupted place in your life, for example, uh, where you need to trust in his presence? There is no evidence of it. (laughs) It's dark. It's dank. It is dung-strewn where you are right now. Can you dare to have faith that he may actually be with you more than you can possibly understand right now? Is there perhaps a, a set of expectations you've had shattered? You had a plan. It was a good plan from your perspective, but it's not worked out that way. It's, it's wrecked that plan of yours Can you trust, can you put your faith in his wise providence? Can you dare to believe he knows what he's doing? That he has the capacity to take all of these tangled strings and weave them together into the tapestry of his greater purposes? Is there a promise of God that you need to put your trust in? The promise that if you you offer yourself, he's going to provide for you. The promise that if 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 you risk going to that place of obedience, he's going to carry you and enable you there. That the, the promise that even if your body's breaking down, he's got you. You'll be resurrected one day. Is there a promise you need to put your faith in? Is there a calling of God that you need to step out on in, in boldness to, 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 to give sacrificially or to forgive sacrificially or to speak up and out about something important or to surrender and be silent or to... To slow down in some way, is there 
a call he's issuing to you that you've been feeling and now it's time to risk commitment to it. Whatever it is, I want to challenge you. Put your faith in God today like those two teenagers did. Put your faith in God and you keep walking. You do not need absolute certainty. I know we've gotten really accustomed to the control thing. You don't need it. Because the one who is absolute and the one who is certain, he has you. He is your home. Wherever you go on life's road, he is your home. And if like Mary and Joseph and the Magi before us, you will trust him and you will obey him in the days ahead, your life too is going to become a a more integrated part of the true story that Christmas still tells. This true story of great hope for all people that Christmas still tells to this needy world. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we... We just confess we do like the control. We want the certainty. We, we hunger for the stability, especially these days in the midst of this crazy, violent, unpredictable world. Help us to put our faith in you, to, to, to pour ourselves into you as the great constant the true center, the ultimate security of life. And having followed you, Lord, more faithfully in these days to come, may you be glorified through our lives and may we find and see in ever greater measure the wonders of your love and the reliability of your faithfulness. For we pray in Jesus Christ. Amen.